Hi, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the SPSC podcast. Today, we will be discussing the Abraham Accords, as well as the other peace talks taking place in the Middle East. We will be joined by Dr. Anwar Mahajni, who is a professor of political science and international relations here at Stonehill. But first, I, w- I would like to welcome our new guest host, Jill Malloy. Jill, if you wouldn't mind kicking off the episode, we would love to find out why you chose Stonehill and more specifically, political science. Hi, everyone. Um, I am excited to join you guys today. So thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, To start off, I am a third year political science major here at Stonehill. I was originally drawn to this college because I like how small the campus is, that it feels like a tight-knit community. And because of that, you're also able to form close relationships with your peers and your professors here throughout the years. Um, I chose to major in political science because I've always had a sort of interest in how policy was formed and how that affects the local, state, and national level. But since starting college, I've become more drawn and interested in the foreign policy and global security side. Um, I've been taking Arabic since my first semester here, which was kind of uh, spurred my interest in the MENA region. And hopefully one day post COVID, I will actually be able to go there and focus my studies to better understand the culture and the language. Um, That being said, I am excited to be here today with you guys to interview Professor Mahajni about recent events that have been unfolding this past year in the region. It's great to have you on today. So today's discussion will focus on these peace talks taking place in the Middle East. And for many listeners, this is going to be a new topic. Jill, if you wouldn't mind, what's the situation all about? Um, So just to start off, since its founding in 1948, Egypt and Jordan were the only Middle Eastern states to formally recognize the state of Israel. For decades since then, many Arab states have refused to acknowledge establishing ties with them until the dispute with Palestine was settled. This has recently changed with the new peace deals brought on between Israel and the United, uh, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan. It's been said for years now that Israel and these Arab states have had security ties but these agreements formally bring it into the open. It establishes normalized relations and basically allows for conditions such as formal business relations, direct flights between the countries, tourism, cooperation at the scientific and research level, and diplomatic relations. These agreements are allegedly supposed to encourage progress among neighbors in the region to cooperate on common interests and the shared desire for a better future. President Trump has also accredited himself as a major peacemaker in the Middle East because his administration did take part in brokering the deals. Today for the podcast, we are going to dive more thoroughly into what these accords actually accomplish and the reactions from other actors within the region. The Abraham Accords between Israel and the UAE have normalized relations between the two states. The Emirati ambassador to the United States released a statement saying the the treaty lowers tensions and creates new energy for positive change across the region. The normalization between Israel and and states in the region can end prejudices within each nation and foster growth and innovation. Especially with COVID-19, the relationship formed between Israel and the UAE in the weeks prior to the treaty has led to a combined response to the pandemic, which continues today. In the treaty, as much as it may encourage economic and social change and progress, is centered around the common threat of Iran. As Iran has pursued an increasingly hostile stance with both nations, the UAE has come to this consensus 
that standing with Israel is, will create a bulwark against Iran. However, there are some very, very serious concerns with the Abraham Accords. Um, for one, there seems to be lots of opposition on the ground in Palestine, the UAE, and Bahrain. And there is a looming question over why these Arab countries are bypassing their support for Palestine. Some Palestinians have referred to the agreement as a stab in the back because in their eyes, the UAE and Bahrain should be supporting Palestine. The initial contingency for former peace attempts with Arab countries was that Israel allow for an independent Palestinian state. Trump claims that a deal to annex the West Bank is off the table. However, Netanyahu has produced the opposite rhetoric, that while the plan is sidelined for now, it will make a comeback, and he will not allow for an independent Palestinian state. This leaves many scratching their heads as to what the UAE and Bahrain are getting in this agreement. There have been discrete deals between the UAE and Israel for years, but this is an intense departure from the norm before. One of the biggest areas for concern is the sale of cyber capabilities from Israel to the UAE and Bahrain. Israel is one of the leading nations in the world in cybersecurity, and there has been a growing need across the globe to increase cyber capabilities. Clients across the Middle East have benefited from Israel's cyber sales, but now the peace deal opens the possibility of an all-out cyber alliance. Hacking tools from Israel are so powerful that the UAE and Bahrain could have the capability of spying on almost any device in their regions. Now, both the UAE and Bahrain are undemocratic states who, since the peace deal, have attempted to suppress civilian opposition, especially those citizens taking the side of the Palestinians. The new cyber capabilities from Israel allow the UAE and Bahrain to further suppress political opposition on media platforms and maintain their regime. In terms of power, this deal gives the governments of UAE and Bahrain new weapons that they didn't have before. Dissent can easily be crushed thanks to the cyber tools from Israel. The main future implication is that other states may follow suit. Sudan has recently just signed off on the deal and recognized Israel as a state as well. The Palestinians will feel more and more pressure because they rely on fellow Arab countries to back them against Israel in the face of annexation. For more on this, we will go to our interview with Professor Mahajni. Um, so welcome back to the podcast. We are now joined by our Professor Mahajni. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Jill? Good. I'm doing good. Um, so for our first question, um, the accord does not mention relations with Palestine. Additionally, Iran and Turkey have also condemned the deal because they believe it is overall abandoning the Palestinians. To this extent, and given your knowledge of the relationship between Israel and Palestine, can you talk about how this affects the Palestinian people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a great question, Joe. So the Accords definitely uh, did not reference the Palestinian issue or the Palestinian cause. It did not happen with consultation with the Palestinians, and that has major implications to uh, the conflict. First of all, it it's a dramatic breakthrough with, uh, you know, old pan-Arab consensus, which says that we will not normalize relationship with Israel until the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been resolved and a two-state solution 
uh, with the like taking into consideration Israel's withdrawal from 1967 borders and the removal of the settlements from the West Bank and you know easing the siege on Gaza um, it is being implemented and there is no normalization with Israel. Now this came to challenge those, uh, you know, those preconditions that were put by Arab, straight, Arab states on normalization with Israel. Now we only have Bahrain and the UAE uh, talks about Sudan, and now actually yesterday, the Israeli media exposed a meeting between Bibi Netanyahu and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Saudi Arabia's foreign minister kind of denied it, but Israeli media is providing uh, evidence that that happened with the presence of Pompeo. Um, so it, that's a very alarming sign. But I mean, later on, we'll talk about Saudi Arabia and its likelihood of actually joining um, such normalization agreements. Now, what that does is, first of, first of all, shows that pan-Arabism is not a thing anymore, right? Uh, two, that the Palestinian cause is not at the center uh, or the main concern of Arab countries in the region. They're now more focused on Iran. Um, and that isolates the Palestinians and the Palestinian leadership because now they don't have any negotiation room or leverage over Israel. Uh, and that means they have to rethink their own strategies and the way they approach the conflict in the international community. Uh, the Palestinians were obviously very disappointed by the Arab League's uh, refusal to condemn the UAE for signing up uh, the deal. You know, we said it's only the UAE and Bahrain, but the problem is that Bahrain would have never signed if Saudi Arabia did not approve that, right? Because the uh, Bahrain relies heavily on Saudi Arabia for its own security. Um, and then uh, we saw that Arab, other Arab nations refused to condemn the deal. And also it's important to mention that this is not a peace agreement. In order for you to have a peace agreement, you need to be in direct conflict with these countries, such as what happened with Egypt and Israel, right? It is more of a normalization agreement because the UAE and uh, Bahrain were never in direct conflict with Israel. Um, so that should like give you a, a view of how that isolated the Palestinians. Now the UAE came out and they said, well, uh, we asked uh, Israel to kind of, uh, stop annexation of the West Bank. Bibi said that he's pausing on it and that's not guaranteed, right? So nobody knows what might happen in the future. I mean, honestly, I don't think Bibi was ever going to annex, uh, you know, officially annex the West Bank. We know that there are settlements there that are already happening because the status quo works for Israel. Um, I don't think they'll want more Palestinians uh, within their own borders and having to deal with uh, citizenship rights and kind of the question of should we include them as residents, citizens, what type of rights should they have, uh, and then even paint Israel more so of an occupier um, that, doesn't uh, that doesn't provide equal citizenship for people within it, uh, its borders. Now, you mentioned Saudi Arabia earlier. The U.S. has increased pressure on the Saudis to normalize relations, and some Saudi media, royals, and official clerics have also mm -hmm. supported recent agreements between Israel and other Gulf states but the Saudi kingdom has not elaborated on the chance of establishing diplomatic relations. What do you think would be the implications of Saudi Arabia and Israel establishing normalized relations? That would be a big, big deal. And the Palestinians are really worried about it. Um, now, there are a few things to consider. First of all, I highly doubt that any agreement will happen anytime soon. At least, you know, we know that they're getting, the relationships are getting warmer and there is cooperation, but it's under the table and hasn't formalized, right? Especially when it comes to Iran. Now, with uh, 
MBS's dad is still alive. So the Saudi King Salman bin Abdulaziz um, is, he's still alive. Um, so I highly doubt that any of the normalization, if it would happen, will happen while he's alive. Uh, because, you know, of his historic stance on the issue and because of his role as the guardian of, you know, uh, Islamic holy site and his position, and actually on September 23rd of this year, he gave a speech at the UN General Assembly where he said that Saudi Arabia, um, first of all, they're not against normalization with Israel, but they want that normalization to happen based on the um, on the parameters set by the Arab peace plan, which Saudi Arabia pushed for in 2002. Uh, so I highly doubt that will happen when he's alive, but I, MBS, his successor, his son, um, is, a bit of a, is a bit of a controversial figure and he likes kind of to shock people. So that might happen. However, that might come at a um, at high cost. First, Saudi Arabia is sharing the rule with other clerks, right? Um, they had to deal with extremists such as Al-Qaeda and any normalization with Israel could uh, push these extremists to kind of attack the kingdom and undermine it. It could push for countries such as Qatar and Turkey to question Saudi Arabia's position as the guardians of the Islamic holy sites and ask for national, uh, internationalization of uh, Mecca and Medina. Right, uh, So that could create this, uh, instability in the, uh, inside of Saudi Arabia. Moreover, even though the Arab public is becoming less and less concerned with the Palestinian issue, it's still an important issue for them, right? And I highly doubt that in Saudi Arabia anytime soon, everyone's going to be okay with Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with Israel, especially if Israel continues its attacks against the Palestinians, right? So Saudi Arabia will have to change its position depending on how Israel approaches the Palestinians. Um, but that could be also a leverage that Saudi Arabia could use its ties to Israel to kind of push or prevent Israel from using aggressive measures. Now, that's a, an interesting thing because Saudi Arabia is an oppressive government in itself. So um, there's always those contradictory uh, expectations of Saudi Arabia to kind of protect Palestinians, even though domestically they've been uh, oppressing the opposition within their own uh, borders and countries. These normalization deals do not necessarily guarantee a peaceful region. As we saw in the Arab Spring in 2011, a majority of Arab countries have held protests against corrupt and oppressive governments. Do you think that Arab states need the United States and Israel's support to contain instability across the region? So these regimes want them to do contain instability, but through oppressive means, right? So we started talking about Saudi Arabia being oppressive towards its own citizens. Uh, we saw what MBS did uh, with the murder of Khashoggi uh, in Istanbul. We also know that he has imprisoned many activists, including women activists, um, and they're suppressing any dissident. We know Saudi Arabia's, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and even Bahrain's kind of role in uh, the uh, conflict in Yemen. Uh, where they are attacking the Houthi rebels and uh, providing, uh, you know, and uh, conducting strikes that are causing one of the most, uh, one of the worst humanitarian crises in our modern day, uh, where people are, are literally starving in Yemen. Um, we know with that with Bahrain, with the Arab Spring, Bahrain, which is a Sunni minority government that is governing a big Shia population, uh, suppressed 
the protest, asked Saudi Arabia for help, and Saudi Arabia actually sent troops to the ground. Um, so that shows, yeah, they do need it for uh, to counter instability, but what type of instability are we talking about? We're talking about any protest that will delegitimize the, the power grip that these regimes have on their own people. The other thing is to mention that with the accords, uh, UAE actually got an arms trade with the US, right? Um, so now they can uh, buy uh, drones from the US. Um, and uh, so I think it was uh, Reaper drones. They also got um, the chance to buy F-35 fighter planes. And also Israel with its cyber capability and spy capability and technology now can share these technologies with oppressive regimes to further oppress their own people. Again, that's not surprising because Israel developed these weapons because or due to the occupation of Palestinians, right? So these systems used to promote the occupations that are the same systems that will be used and technologies that will be used to continue oppressing uh, civil society organizations and human rights activists in the region. Throughout his presidency, Donald Trump's strategy has consisted of claiming to get out of the endless wars, pursuing a maximum pressure campaign on Iran, and attempting to bring peace to the region. But at the same time, he has waded in and out of conflicts and takes random actions, such as the killing of General Soleimani, that risk further destabilization within the Middle East. My question for you is, how would you describe Trump's strategy in the region and moving forward, what are you expecting to see from the Biden administration? Yeah, so with Trump, um, Trump is not a master. I feel like Trump only had a big strategy when it came to Israel and its ties, normalizing ties to Gulf countries. And I feel like it was pushed for by, um, you know, people like Kushner in the administration, Pompeo. Um, but when it comes to Iran, I don't think he had a grand strategy in mind. He was more of a reactionary to what was going on. Uh, now, first, I expect Biden to differ with Trump in a few ways. One, Trump, the Trump administration never really condemned Saudi Arabia for the murder of Khashoggi. They even like, um, you know, he praised him on a lot of on multiple occasions and didn't question his human rights record. Uh, Trump did not. Uh, you know, kind of uh, critiques out area for what's going on in Yemen. Um, and that's an issue. Now, with the Biden administration, I think at least based on his statements, again, he's going to take a more aggressive stance or public stance to shame regimes who are abusing human rights, um, especially when it comes, for instance, to Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Now, that's his statement, right? Uh, but historically, considering his role in the Obama administration and what the Obama administration did, we saw that even though they critiqued, uh, you know, uh, oppressive governments in the region, they still sold weapons to Saudi Arabia, right? Um, which was involved in the conflict in Yemen even then. So we'll see if he's going to depart from the Obama administration's um, policies in the region and kind of take a more progressive approach, hopefully pushed for by the more progressive, uh, you know, elements of the Democratic Party. Um, 
The other thing is when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian, oh, actually let's talk about Iran and then move on to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. When it comes to Iran, I think, uh, you, you know, Biden talked about renegotiating the agreement with Iran, um, which is going to be different, of course, from the Trump administration's aggressive approach and sanctions. Uh, so hopefully the sanctions that like it's a continuation of the policy, you know, the carrot and stick. Uh, so hopefully Iran would be willing to sit and negotiate with the Biden administration, even though I am anticipating it to be a difficult um, agreement to reach. First of all, because the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Israel, right? Uh, they don't want um, Iran, they want the US to actually engage in containing Iran actively on the ground. Uh, so any agreement with Iran that will remove sanctions and improve its economy and that will stabilize it internally could be viewed as against, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the interest of the other countries in the region. To the trust issue, I don't know if Iran is going to trust the current administration considering what happened uh, after, you know, Trump uh, pulling out of the agreement that Obama negotiated. Now, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, that's where I don't expect to see much of a difference when it comes to reversing any of Trump's policies. Um, so the, the embassy is going to stay in Jerusalem. The normalization agreements, actually the Democratic Party welcomed them and even Biden called them, a, like he said, that, that it was one of the good things that the Trump administration did. However, the only difference will be in condemning, condemning um, settlements and pushing more actively for the two-state solution and, uh, and actually talking to the Palestinians directly about what they need. Um, so I'm hoping that with the normalization will force also the Palestinian leadership, which now actually are talking about having elections since a long, long time in February, uh, to reconcile the differences between Hamas and Fatah, between Gaza and the West Bank and have actually free elections and uh, maybe a new approach to the conflict and kind of a more reasonable uh, diplomatic way to uh, resolve the conflict that is based more on human rights than uh, counting on oppressive Arab regimes to help you out, right? Uh, resolve the conflict and like demand rights. Great, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're definitely gonna be watching the situation unfold under the new administration. Uh, and hopefully our listeners got to learn something new. Um, again, it's great to have your insight on a topic that not many Americans fully understand right now. So we appreciate that. Uh, and it's nice to talk uh, outside the classroom. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the SPSC podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on whatever platform you may be listening on so you can stay up to date with what's going on around the world. If you want to learn more about the SPSC club at Stonehill, you can find us on Instagram at StonehillPSC. That's StonehillPSC. We post regularly about events, opportunities, and we will include some further readings and materials on the Abraham Accords.